Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of this new book interview podcast done in collaboration with the Asian Review of Books and the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview both fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. To Mother, from Suneno, Confidential, I'm writing with spring greetings. I went to Kandaminagawacho in Edo quite unexpectedly, and I ended up in so much trouble. This letter, hidden in an archive in in Niigata, inspired Professor Amy Stanley to write her latest work, Stranger in the Shogun City, A Japanese Woman and Her World. She traces Suneno's life from growing up in a rural community to her escape to the city of Edo, where she lives in the final decades of the Tokugawa Shogun. Professor Stanley is a professor of history at Northwestern University, where she is a historian of early and modern Japan with special interest in women's history. Her first book, Selling Women, Prostitution, Households, and the Market Early Modern Japan, explored how an expanding market for sex transformed the Japanese economy and changed women's lives in the years between 1600 and 1868. But today, Amy and I will discuss her latest book, Stranger in the Shogun City, the life of its main character and its historical setting. We will also talk about what inspired her to write about this ordinary woman, and what the research process for this book was like. So Amy, let's start by introducing the protagonist of the book, Suneno. What was her life like, and what, in your view, makes her story so compelling? So Suneno's story started out fairly typically. She was born in 1804 in Echigo province, which is now Niigata prefecture, colloquially known as the snow country because it snows so much there. And she was the daughter of a Buddhist priest. So she grew up in a temple. And this meant that she was fairly privileged. So she learned to read and write, which was important and fairly atypical for a countryside woman of her era. Maybe about 10% of women in the countryside would have learned to read and write. Uh, But her family had a prominent place in the village. And so she was quite well educated and um, she was fairly well off. And her family married her to another Buddhist priest, um, this time all the way up in Dewa province, so fairly far away, when she was only 12 years old. She was a little young to be married, and even her family recognized that they were sending her away when she was still very young. But again, this was a fairly typical life course for the daughter of a Buddhist temple to be married to a Buddhist priest like her father. She spent about 15 years in that first marriage, and then she was divorced and sent back home. And after that, her story becomes extremely interesting. So she married once again, a second marriage. This was also fairly typical. People could get divorced and remarried several times in Tokugawa, Japan. This is something that people are often surprised by because they think of a traditional society as being very rigid when it comes to marriage. But this wasn't the case. So Tsuneno then married again to this time to a wealthy peasant closer to home. But that marriage coincided with the disaster of the temple famine. She stayed in that village with her new husband for four years and was eventually divorced, at which point her family decided to marry her off yet again. This was her third marriage, and she's getting up there in years now. Um, And also three marriages is far less typical than two marriages, but they gave it another shot. They married her off again, but this marriage lasted only about five months before she was divorced yet again 
and sent home. And at that point, Sunino entered a period of extreme depression. At one point, she said that she wanted to die. Her family was making plans to marry her off yet again, which she resisted. She said she absolutely did not want to go marry a widower in some terrible place. She recognized that this was the fate awaiting her if she stayed. And so instead, she ran away to the big city of Edo, which is now Tokyo, which she had always wanted to see, and tried to make a new life for herself in the city. And this is what made her story so compelling to me, which is that through this woman, we can see what life was like in the countryside. And we can also see what life was like in what was one of the greatest cities in the world in the first half of the 19th century, because once she got to Edo, she had to survive and she had to work as a maidservant and she had to find her own way. And I think it was that story of a woman who rejected convention and tried to pursue her own dreams, her own life in a different place which was so compelling to me and which also made me think about how this small story of a woman from the countryside going to the city to make a new life for herself is one that we can see repeated all across Eurasia, all across North America, all across the world actually in this era. And so it's not only a very specific story about an individual struggle and aspiration, but it's almost a universal story about women and cities and what drives people to cities to make a new life. I, I wonder if we can actually delve into that a bit more. It's something you mentioned in the book, how this is a, a common phenomenon you see the world over, about women going to the city to, to get a new life, to, find, to potentially find a more independent life. Um, I guess I'd like to, to get into that a little bit more, I guess both in the context of Suneno's story and maybe Japan in general, and maybe also just, just this phenomenon of, of women going to the city. Yes, so this was actually the first argument that I tried out from this material, from these letters I found, because I went to give a talk at Berkeley, actually, I remember this quite clearly, um, and Professor Mary Elizabeth Berry was in the audience, and she said, you know, this story about Tsuneno reminds me of the novel Clarissa. I think it was Clarissa that she said. Um, but in any case, it's a very common story the world over that the, the country girl wants to go to the city, she wants to wear nice clothes, she wants to have a more glamorous life, um, and she has all kinds of adventures, and often that story is, it ends in ruin. And I started thinking about this, and I realized, you know, she was right. Um, and I started looking at a lot of different places, um, different histories, especially European history, and found this story over and over again in the period between, say, 1500 and 1900, that this was a very common story that echoed um, all over Eurasia. And this made me think about how, you know, we think of Japan being very culturally different from someplace like France. Um, but in fact, you can see these stories playing out in very similar ways across time and space. And so at the end of chapter one, I think it is, in this book, I point this out that even though Tsuneno would not have known anything about France or the United States or England, that she was living out a version of the story that was very common across the world. And I find that compelling because we can still see versions of that story today, right? That here I live in Chicago and we have so many people coming in from all over the Midwest 
um, from the countryside, from farms, right, to build a new life in the city for all kinds of reasons. But I think it's interesting because it reminds us that even though the city is fraught with peril, and we know this today because of, for example, epidemics, um, also, you know, there's typically more crime in cities, cities are crowded, um, it's hard to make it in the city when there are a million other people also trying to make it they're still incredibly attractive places to live. And in part, that's because of the imagination and the aspirations and the energies of people who are living in the countryside who give the cities that energy and that life when they migrate there. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a common story in, in fiction for, I guess, good reason, as you said. I mean, it's, it's a common story in fiction because it has parallels in, in real life. Um, but I'd like to get into the history a little bit, you know, it's the, 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 the setting for the book um, and, and the history we're talking about. So uh, the book is set in the last few decades of the Tokugawa shogunate. I think Sunano, I think she passes away just over a month before uh, Commodore Perry's mission to open up Japan. Um, you know, spoilers for those who haven't read the book, I guess. Um, <laughs> there are no spoilers but, in history. <laughs> um, but 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 I guess what's happening in Japan over this period? Um, what are some of the social, economic, and political changes we're seeing? So this is a very interesting period in Japanese history, and of course they are all interesting. Um, but this is a period of um, change, but not change in a direction that people could foresee. So, for example. Um, when Tsunino is in her second marriage, as I had mentioned, um, there was a catastrophic famine called the Temple Famine. And this famine led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and also to social unrest. So um, there's a very famous rebellion in Osaka in 1837, Oshio Heihachiro's rebellion. Um, he had been an official of the shogunate. He was dissatisfied at the way that the government was treating the people, and he was um, kind of appalled that the shogunate would let people starve. So he raised his banners and he tried to rebel against the shogunate, and that rebellion was unsuccessful and put down, but it gave... Um, the shogun had a really good scare, right? Not only that there could be a rebellion, but also that um, a samurai and an official of the shogunate, a former former official of the shogunate, would launch such a rebellion. So there was an increasing feeling that there was domestic unrest, and that the shogunate in particular needed to be able to reform. And then around the same time, there was the threat from outside, and I talk in the book about the shock of. Um, Qing China's defeat in the First Opium War and the kind of encroaching threat of Western imperialism. And in Japanese history, we often call this, according to um, a kind of classical Chinese phrase that has been adopted in Japanese, naiyu gaikan. So like threats, uh, troubles within and th troubles at home and threats from abroad. So this is a time in which um, in the 1840s and into the very early 1850s, People feel like they are living in an unstable era, that change might be coming, but they're not quite sure which direction that change is coming from. And so in the book, I talk about all of this kind of social unrest, dissatisfaction, 
um, the shogunate trying to crack down on the city of Edo in particular as a way to reassert its control. Um, But then Commodore Perry arrives in 1853. And even though people had been concerned about Western imperialism, they had really been looking to the North in particular, to Russia. They had been looking to the British in China. Um, They knew something was coming, but the form that it actually came in with Perry and those black ships was still surprising. And so I tried to think about this in the book um, in terms of our own era a little bit, in which we know Um, We feel, I think, in this era, I'm only speaking for myself, but that change is in the air and that society is unstable, but we're not exactly sure where the next blow is going to come from. So it is that kind of sense of, of anxiety and slight disorientation that I wanted to convey in the book. Yeah, I, I I will note for our listeners that we are recording this about forty eight hours before election day in the United <laughs> States, um, which maybe which maybe highlights some of these feelings. But 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 to go back to the to the historical setting, um, you know, one thing that that struck me is it feels like this is a period where some of the maybe let's say some some fundamental instabilities in in shogunate society were starting to come to the fore. I was especially struck by your description of of the samurai classes. And and how the let's say the the rituals and led maybe even regulations around that class led to a lot of very strange outcomes. Like they were constantly <laughs> in debt, and you know just generally kind of doing a lot of unproductive work. Um, I also wanted to remember, remember too. You mentioned in the book that there were a series of reforms. Um, I think motivated by uh, China's defeat in the Opium Wars. But I think in the book you say the distressing thing is that these reforms create a lot of um, disruption but didn't actually solve any problems. Um, so I guess I can't, I get, it, it, would it be right to kind of see this period as one where a lot of these kind of fundamental instabilities and inconsistencies in, in shogunate society start coming to the fore? So yes, I mean, that's an important argument. And I think it's true, which is that there are these... Um, inconsistencies, right, in between the status hierarchy, which um, is the kind of system of government in which the samurai class, which is about 10% of the population, is supposed to be exalted. They are supposed to be at the top of society. They are supposed to be responsible for government. And of course, they're also supposed to be responsible for the defense of the realm. But in fact, because of the economic changes that had been going on under the surface of Tokugawa society since basically its founding in 1600, um, the samurai class was increasingly impoverished. And this is because it's complicated, but basically samurai get their revenue and their salaries in rice. And this is something that I go into the book, right? They literally receive their salaries in rice most of the time, and that rice has to be converted into cash Because, of course, you can't just sit around your house with a bunch of barrels of rice. That doesn't make any sense. Um, You actually need to buy things. So the value of that rice actually declined because more and more rice was being produced over the course of the Tokugawa era because of improvements in agriculture and improvements in fertilizer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So basically what the samurai class is dealing with was inflation. And at the same time, 
they're uh, living in cities like Edo, where there are all sorts of different things to eat, different things to wear, different things to buy. And so in order to kind of keep up appearances, samurai also have to have servants because you can't be just a samurai living on your own. You have to have some attendance. Life is getting more and more expensive for them. And so in the book, in chapter five, when I talk about the samurai, I talk about how um, they are in an enviable position compared to the urban poor, right? Compared to the masses of people who have no guaranteed income whatsoever. But on the other hand, they face this tension between trying to maintain the trappings of their status and actually being able to afford those things. And so the samurai class, while keeping up appearances to the, for the most part, is going deeper and deeper into debt. And of course, the shogunate, right, which relies on status in order to govern the realm, is very concerned about this um, because it is not the way that a fair society is supposed to work in their view. Um, Oshiohe Hachiro, who I talked about in the, a few minutes ago, was very much an exception to this rule. Um, so the shogunate, in order to kind of reform society um, in the aftermath of the temple famine, and also being mindful of China's defeat in the Opium War, decided to launch a reform program, which was partly fiscal reform, that is making sure that their tax revenue was coming in um, and putting pressure on local lords to reassign some of their lands, but was also a program of moral reform, that their society needed to achieve this, it kind of go back to an ideally just and fair society in the shogunate's eyes, um, which meant elevating the samurai class and not allowing ordinary people to engage in frivolous spending and wearing showy clothes um, and going to um, raucous theater performances, all of these things that the shogunate would have seen as signs of moral decay. Unfortunately, for the masses of people in Edo, this was how they made a living, right? They made a living by being hairdressers, um, by selling um, things that the shogunate thought were frivolous, by, you know, being theater performers or street performers. Um, and so the, these moral reforms of the shogunate, called the temple reforms after the famine, actually had this chilling effect on the entire economy and made it much more difficult for poor people in Edo to earn a living. Now, there were some um, governors in Edo itself, um, the Edo city magistrate, for example, who were sympathetic to the plight of the urban poor and thought that their reforms had gone too far. Um, but in fact, uh, they were devastating for a lot of people, including for Tsuneno and for her husband, who was at the time trying to make a living as a um, masterless samurai who's going around trying to get jobs in different samurai mansions. Um, and of course, there was unemployment. Um, people were not hiring. And so you can see how this era of reform, which seems very abstract and very high level, actually impacted an individual and ultimately helped to destroy her marriage. Um, I guess speaking, speaking of marriage, um, you know, I, I was particularly struck by the, by the treatment of failed marriages and divorce in this period of Japanese history. I mean, the system's still clearly, you know, not great. Um, it's still patriarchal. It still doesn't give a lot of autonomy to, to women, but there seems to be much less stigma attached to divorce. As you mentioned, it was not, it would not be strange for, for Sinano to have, to go through at least one divorce, be married twice. Although as time goes on, the more and more it happens, there's more <laughs> stigma attached. 
but 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 it seems to be a very different treatment of marriage and divorce than than I expect you would have found in in Europe or the United States at the same period. Yes, it is very different, and that is because of the structure of the Japanese household system. Um, so the way I explain this to my students is that in general, and of course there are exceptions, there are people who don't live in kind of um, households per se, but the idea was, or the ideal was, that a family's child, one child of this family, would take over the family business, um, whatever that business was, whether it was being a samurai or being a maker of tatami mats or being a Buddhist priest. And that child who was going to take over the family and take over the family business would live in the family home while the rest of the siblings who weren't going to take over would be married out or go um, form their own households. And so I think of this, right, when I talk to my students about this, I use the example of my own family, right? So I have, you know, I'm married to my husband and I have two sons. I have an older son named Sam and I have a younger son named Henry. And in the Japanese household system, in the ideal world, right, Sam would eventually, my oldest son, it could be my youngest son, but I would decide, you know, maybe my oldest son is more responsible um, and he seems to have more promise as somebody who can take over the household. So I would say, okay, Sam is going to take over the household and Henry is going to go off and make his own life someplace else. We can set him up with a different store or marry him off to some woman somewhere. But Sam is going to live in our household for the rest of his life. He's going to take care of us when we're old. And he's going to take over our family business of being scholars. So he is going to inherit um, this life of scholarship from me and his father. And so when he gets married, right, and this is a kind of a heterosexual system, so we would assume that he was going to marry a woman, um, that woman he marries is going to have to come to our household and live with us and learn about the life of being married to a scholar. So we can help him choose and, in fact, choose for him when he comes of age to get married. But what if that woman comes into our household and she turns out to be a disaster? If we're stuck with her forever, then our household is really in trouble, right? So it makes sense to build in some flexibility in the system so that if she lives with us for a few years and Sam doesn't like her and we also don't like her, we can divorce her and send her back to her parents and try again. So in fact, it is the rigidity of the household system in some ways that makes it necessary for there to be flexibility in marriage and divorce. I'm not sure why, but I'm getting some, some strange parallels to maybe employment, um, you know, probation, probation periods. And, you know, you leave one job, it doesn't work out, that's fine, but maybe leave several and people start to ask questions. Um, yeah, that's actually, that's a really good analogy that I've never thought of before, right? You know, because after, you know, several years when Suneno comes home from her first marriage, um, there are all sorts of reasons why that might not have worked out, right? Um, I'm pretty sure they never had children, um, but there would have been no way to know whether that was Suneno's quote unquote fault. Um, it could be that that household had gone through some strange um, occurrences. Actually, that household had had a fire right before she was divorced that burned down the whole temple. Um, so it would have been hard for people to point at Suneno and say, well, obviously there's something wrong with this woman, right? Instead, they might have looked at her and said, well, she made a marriage work for about 15 years. She can't be that bad. And so it was relatively easy for her to marry again. Even after her second marriage collapsed, 
it was easy for her to marry, marry a third time. Her parents, um, her older brother got something like three different proposals that he had to choose from. So Tsunido was clearly in demand in spite of her checkered and unfortunate marital past. And it seems that it's only after the collapse of that third marriage, after only five months, that she saw the possibilities for her future narrowing. Um, so I'd like to to shift now to talking about your your writing and research process, um, and I guess we, we've we've already discussed in part kind of what was what you find compelling about Sunino's life, um, but the introduction of your book I think presents you stumbling upon this letter um, that I mentioned in the introduction, and it kind of seems like an act of serendipity. Um, yet of course you decided to to pursue this further. Um, I guess my first question is why, and second. What did pursuing this further entail? <laughs> That's a good question. So I came across this letter when I was doing research, actually, um, to be able to teach a class on early modern Japan. I wanted to assign some original documents to my students. And of course, that meant that I would need to translate them into English. And so I was looking for some good documents to translate when I came across the website of the Niigata Prefectural Archives, um, which I'd known about because I'd done some previous research there for my first book. And they had an Interneto Komonjo Koza, which is an internet document reading course, in which they introduced some of their most interesting documents to the public. And when I clicked on, I think it was number 13, it was Tsuneno's letter home to her mother that you quoted in the very first uh, minute of this podcast. And what when they showed the image, I couldn't read the image at all because the, the Tsuneno wrote in um, a type of script that's called Kuzushiji or the destroyed style. Um, and it is not like seeing printed characters. So... I couldn't read it, but luckily they provided a transcription in characters that were more readable. And when I read the transcription, it really, the voice in the letter struck me because she said that she was in Edo, that she was fine, that she was working for this rich merchant and preparing a tea room. Um, but the one line in the letter that really stood out to me for some reason was she said, everything I eat here is delicious. And that sounded so strikingly modern to me. And it also reminded me of myself when I had first gone to Tokyo in 1997 as a sophomore in college, um, that I too thought that everything in Tokyo was delicious. So it was really the kind of the clarity and the directness of that voice, plus the fact that the archivist said in their um, explanation of the material that there were many other letters from her in the archive and that she had ended up in the service of a very famous city magistrate. So that was the impetus for me to go to Niigata and take pictures of all these letters. And the archivists there were enormously helpful. Um, they pointed me to everything they thought would be useful. They actually gave me the finding aid with highlights saying, this is a Tsunino letter and this is a Tsunino letter. But the problem was still that I couldn't read them because they were written in this destroyed style. And not only were they written in this destroyed style, but they were written almost entirely phonetically in the case of Tsunino's letters, so not using kanji characters, um, but hiragana. 
And also that Tsunino, as I was about to discover, often wrote things as they sounded to her, and she spoke um, an Echigo dialect. So, for example, whenever she said um, Edo, it sounded to her like Ido. And so she would actually write in her letters Ido, and I would have to figure out what is she talking about? Is it a well? No, it is the city of Edo that she's referring to. Um, but it was very frustrating for me in the beginning. I actually didn't know if I'd be able to complete the project because I could not decipher these characters. So first I sent the first dozen letters or so um, to a friend of mine and I employed him as a research assistant. And I said, can you transcribe these for me to give me a head start? He did. Um, and then by looking at those transcriptions, looking back at the letters and then using my very um, old and decrepit um, destroyed style dictionary, I was able to piece together those letters kind of character by character. And that's what took the longest um, part of the research, right, was trying to figure out what all these letters actually said. And then once I figured out what they said, like literally what the characters were, trying to figure out what they meant. And then once I tried to figure out what they meant, I actually had to put them in order because many of them were undated. And so shuffling around these letters, trying to figure out the timeline um, was the most kind of stressful part of the research. Because if you're trying to write a book, right, that has a narrative, um, but you don't know where your evidence fits in and you can't put it in order, then you don't actually have a story. So all of those things were the kind of practical challenges of doing, doing the research, but on the other hand, I really enjoyed it because deciphering um, the destroyed style script is kind of like a puzzle, right? You see one character here and then a character you can't read and then the next character you can read and you have to think to yourself, what would go in the middle? And so it was that kind of element of discovery, almost of playing a game that I really enjoyed about the research, even though it often frustrated me. How how unique is this situation? I mean, this seems to be like a level of documentation you might see with major historical figures. Um, I guess, are there troves of personal documents like this all over the world sitting in archive just waiting to be written about? Yes, there are, and especially in Japan. So this is something that people often don't know. But early modern Japan, by which I mean the Tokugawa period from 1600 to 1868 or so, is probably one of the most, or if not the most, well-documented um, society in the early modern world. We have so many documents from this period, um, partly because people needed to make records of everything because this is a society that ran on precedent. Um, so you needed to know what happened 20 years ago if you needed to settle a dispute today. And partly because there were such um, high levels of literacy, particularly among men, but comparatively high letter levels of literacy among women too. Um, Tsuneno might have been somewhat unique in her community and being a woman who could read and write, um, but that didn't mean she was the only one, right? There were many others as well, maybe one in 10 or so. Um, and so people, you know, even ordinary households, village headmen's households, Buddhist temples, um, collected all of these documents and then kept them for the purposes of remembering precedent or having documentation. And so every place you go in Japan, um, there are local archives, there are prefectural archives that just have piles and piles and piles of paper 
from the Edo period. And not all of it is from important people. In fact, most of it is completely mundane. It's people's shopping lists and their letters and their scrap paper where they practiced writing their characters. Um, And so we have this enormous resource. And in fact, I think the problem with research on this period is not that we can't find enough evidence. It's in fact that there is so much evidence. There's such an abundance of material that sometimes it's hard to know what to do with it. So I would say that Sunino is not unique in this sense and that you could probably find many, many other women like her whose lives are very well documented in archives um, and even in private collections all over Japan. Um, let's go back to the, to the history and, and the setting of the book. Um, I mean, obviously, I think one of the one of you could almost consider the city of Edo to be a character in itself um, in in your book. Uh, Can you is there much evidence of 19th century Edo uh, visible in today's Tokyo? That is a really good question. Um, There is not much of the original Edo left on the physical landscape, right? There are only a few things. One example that I talk about in the book is the Red Gate, the Lord of Kaga's Mansion, which is now the famous Red Gate at Tokyo University. Um, But otherwise, because of earthquakes, because of fire, because of the fire bombings in World War II, um, and because so much of Edo construction, if not all of it, was wood, um, that built landscape has mostly disappeared. And so the places where you will find evidence of Edo um, are in, for example, um, stores that have survived or restaurants that have survived um, since the 19th century, which are not maybe in their original locations, certainly not in their original buildings, um, but carry on the traditions of Edo in today's Tokyo. And so one of the things that I want people to get out of the book, especially if they are planning on visiting Tokyo or if they live in Tokyo, is this sense of there are hidden places in Tokyo where you can still see the evidence of Edo, where you can still see Tsuneno's world. You just have to know where to look. And I'm hoping that reading this book will give people this idea that they are able to see things in the landscape that they wouldn't have been obvious, that they might not have been able to see before. So I'd I'd like to end the interview by returning to Suneno's life. Um, And on the one hand, I mean, it's a a tough life. Um, He's had multiple marriages, uh, multiple failed marriages, uh, attempting, well, her, her then, her then move to Edo and her attempts to make a life for herself there. Um, You know, working in, in, in tough jobs, having to move back and forth. Um, So on the one hand, it's, it's a very difficult life, but I think, um, your your book treats treats her life with or or has a mixed perspective it understands the the tough the tough things she went through but also recognizes her independent choices in in doing this i guess now that you've written the book and you've read through the whole history of her life how how do you see um the path her life takes is it and and how i guess how do the the bad things mix with the with the good So this was a central question to me as I was writing the book. And in the end, I started thinking about it um, almost as a balance sheet 
because Tsunino, um, after the point when she left home, she was constantly owing money to people. Um, she had pawned her clothes. She was trying to get them back. She was constantly worried about her budget. And she was very conscious of um, the balance sheet, right? What she had lost, what she hoped to regain, um, how much money she had, what she could trade. And I, in the end, I kind of think of her life in that way as an author too, right? Is that she lost a lot. She lost her family. She lost her village. She lost the opportunity to have a family or children of her own, if that's something that she wanted, which the evidence of that is mixed. Um, but she gained a measure of independence and she gained the city of Edo, which, according to her own writings, was a place that she had always wanted to see and a place where she had always wanted to live. And in the end, I asked the question as the author of whether or not she would have thought it was worth it. And to me, obviously, as the author writing 200 years later, being able to see the entirety of this life, um, it's worth it because if she hadn't left home, and gone to Edo and worked in all these different neighborhoods and had all these rocky marriages, she wouldn't have had a story that people would be interested in reading and that I would be interested in researching um, and writing about. But for her, I would like to think that at the end of her life, she thought that the sacrifices were worth it and that gaining her independence and gaining the city um, was worth it to her. But in fact, we'll never know. So I think with that, I think those are all the questions I have for today. Thank you, Professor Amy Stanley, for talking with me today about your latest book, Stranger in the Shogun City, A Japanese Woman and Her World. Uh, Amy, is there where can people find your work? And is there anything you're working on right now that you'd like to tell our listeners about? <laughs> I dread this question because since the pandemic, um, I have been at home with my children who are in first grade and fifth grade doing school over Zoom. And so I spend most oh of my days in my basement um, trying to figure out how to do first grade and fifth grade over Zoom. So I am not working on anything at the moment, and it makes me really sad. Um, but I'm hoping that when the pandemic is over, I can get back into the archives and think more about what I want my next project to be. Um, in the meantime, of course, you can buy this book, um, but you can also find my work um, in the Journal of Japanese Studies, in the Journal of Asian Studies, in the American Historical Review. Um, I had an essay published on Slate. Um, so there are plenty of places, um, if you're interested in reading my work, that you can still read it while we are waiting for this pandemic to be over and for me to be able to get back to work. Well, let's hope that happens sooner rather than later. Definitely. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick. R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Uh, follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's Book Reviews, plural, Asia. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Once again, thank you, Professor Amy Stanley, uh, for joining me today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.